happy Saturday. It's November 26th, 2022, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker from London. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City. And we are two of your airmail people on the street bringing you all the news you can use. All the news you can use, all the extra leftover stuffing and cranberry and turkey. I don't know what it's like there in London. Ashley, did you celebrate? Did you do a little Thanksgiving just for a taste of home or what did you do? Speak for yourself, baby. No, we ordered catering because I'll tell you what, it's school night here, Michael. Like nothing stops for Thanksgiving over here. We still had football practice and art lessons and all the rest. So I ordered a touch of catering from the River Cafe. Also, the oven at my flat here in London, I don't think there's any possible way it would accommodate a turkey. So I had an easy out this year, although my in-laws are in town, which is very fun. So now it is officially the holiday season here in London. If anyone wants to come visit and come shopping, we are ready for you. The halls are fully decked. Holidays in London just makes me think of Love Actually, but that's a story for, and I don't need to go into Love Actually again. But. Wait, Michael, I'm so sorry. We are going to be talking about Love Actually, but did you see the news? Emma Freud, who's one of our columnists here at Airmail, in fact, and her longtime partner, Richard Curtis, are selling their house in Notting Hill that they bought right before the movie came out. Big real estate news here. I did see that, so that is big news. I wonder what the next neighborhood would be. Do you think they're going to write a new film that's like Primrose Hill or Fulham? Richmond, we're ready for it. Richard, Emma, whatever you guys are working on, we await it eagerly. Well, I hope you wait eagerly. Our great show today is our Thanksgiving weekend episode. There'll be no inflatable balloons coming down to knock you in the head, but we do have some great people joining us. From Russia, we have Katya V, who's been on the show before, and she'll be talking about the future of Russia and what Vladimir Putin's long winter looks like. Then we have Michelle McPhee reporting from Beverly Hills on the bizarre scam involving a dentist to the stars and some NBA players and a scheme to bilk the government out of big bucks. Finally, we have Michael Chucky Azzolina, who has been a maitre d' at some of New York's hottest restaurants, telling us about the time a member of the Gotti crime family came into the River Cafe and messed up his world. So it's going to be a great show, easy on your digestion, no leftovers. It's all fresh cooking here on Thanksgiving weekend. Ashley, where would you like to begin? I think we should start with the view from here. One thing I'm thankful for is that we are not living in Russia, that's for sure. And we've got Katya V, a marvelous writer based in Moscow. She is here to talk to us about what life is like on the ground right now in Moscow and her take on the national mood. We're so happy to have her here. Welcome, Katya. Katya, you write in your story about what it feels like to be one of the last members of your group of friends to stay in Russia. Tell us a little bit about why you decided to stay behind and not leave the country. This question is so prominent and so widespread. Like everybody asks me, everybody asks my friends that are still staying. Everybody asks them themselves it. Yeah. And I ask myself this question too very often and there are so many answers to it that i'm starting to think that there is no real answer only like very very many rationalizations to this i think irrational way of thinking but as for me well i don't have resources that are needed leaving yeah I don't have a job in any other country. I don't have as much money as you need to start your life from scratch in some other place. Yeah, it's 
kind of a little a matter of privilege. But moreover, I just don't want to live my home. I like my room. I like the street I live in. I like everything that I have here. And I also have a kind of contract, spoken contract in words with some of my friends that we won't leave without each other. Yeah, so there are people that stay here and as long as they stay here, I stay too. Because in my piece, I wrote about this feeling of isolation of people in Russia because you don't want to grow attached to anybody just for them to leave the country and for you to stay or for both of you to leave the country and go to some very different places and in order to somehow overcome this isolation some of my friends and I just decided to stay together whatever may come I also just am a very obstinate person I just don't like the idea of the space that I still am in this country being taken by these people whom I don't like. Yeah, I just want to be here with all those Putinists and conformists and other people just and some resistance in all the ways I can. But of course, it's also a matter of resources. Yeah, so there are some complicated multiple factors. You write in your column about what life is like when people leave. It requires a lot of money to do so, right? This is not an inexpensive enterprise. And as a result, they end up leaving their things behind as these kinds of tragic mementos for their friends and family. Tell us a little bit about what the process is like for those who leave, why it's so expensive and why they don't take their things with them. Uh, well, you have to buy tickets obviously which are well not as expensive as they were in the beginning of march or in september when the draft was called but still expensive it's also a matter of of luggage obviously and uh, i think the most important thing is that most people leave just without any real house in the place where they are going without any opportunities that they're sure of. Yeah, I know like one of my friends had to leave because her husband from the draft and here they used to live on both her salary and his salary. But in Kyrgyzstan, where they went, they could only have somehow her salary, which was not very big. It is a common thing. You can lose your job, your sources of income. You leave behind your house, your apartment, or the rented apartment, which was very dear to you. And you go somewhere where you just are nobody and you don't know anybody and you don't have a place to live. You have to rent it out very, very fast. So, of course, they don't take many things with them. I think it seems rational in this kind of situation. Katya, it's a very poignant picture you paint of Russia and Moscow right now, because as you said, like you've got this great emptying out that's happening among. And so you've got on one hand, it seems like this stark divide between the Putinists and the loyalists. And then 
as you describe it, the sort of the poor, the obstinate, and the saboteurs who are sort of on the other side. It's a long winter ahead. How do you feel like the next few months will go in Moscow with Putin and with society literally like emptying out like this? Thank you for your appreciation of my story. As for your question, it's very difficult to answer it because nobody thinks about the next few months. Not anymore, yeah. It's more like we're happy to survive the next week. And now with this new feeling of crisis, it's more like a day will do. Moreover, we have some new laws that make me and my friends even more outlaws than we already were. So it's only a matter of luck that I'm not in prison, that I'm not in jail, and I don't know anything may happen. We're only lucky that our regime isn't very resourceful, as you can see from its losses in the war in Ukraine, and also it's not very successful impressions, not very successful becoming real totalitarian state, just doesn't have all the resources, people, money and things that are needed for that. So I don't know, but when I think about winter, first I just like winter and it's beautiful here. And we have some plans with my friends of watching Christmas movies and playing snowballs and things like that because we make plans of that kind for us to believe in something good. We've lasted half a year, more than half a year now, yeah, so it gives me hope that we can last some more time and, well, I don't know, I just live with this belief in, I don't know, in God, in the thing that, I just believe that Something can be okay someday. As I wrote, someday we'll just wake up from this nightmare. Well, Katya, thank you so much for your wonderful story and your insights into what life is like in Russia. And we wish you all the best as you navigate this difficult period. And we look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thank you very much. It was great to see you again. And I'll be happy to join you sometime in the future. Thank you, Katya. Bye. Thanks, Katya. Bye-bye. I love talking to Katya. She has such an incredible, humane insight into what's happening in Russia. Yeah, I mean, but it's also very bracing, I mean, to realize what they're going through there and the quote-unquote normal people on the ground who are trapped there right now. So thoughts are with them. Absolutely. On a completely different note, there's a bizarre story we have this week, courtesy of Michelle McPhee out of Beverly Hills. And it concerns a Beverly Hills dentist who had a scheme to help two former NBA stars defraud the NBA out of a million dollars, which went very smoothly until the athletes decided to stiff the doctor. And she has the details of just one of these great little Coen Brothers-esque kind of Con's gone wrong. Michelle McPhee is a veteran investigative journalist, and she has written two books on the bombing of the Boston Marathon. One is called Maximum Harm, and the other is called Mayhem, and we're so happy to have her on the show. Welcome, Michelle. Okay, Michelle, you took a close look at a Beverly Hills dentist and his scheme to help two former basketball stars defraud the NBA out of a million dollars. Crazy. Tell us about the dental clinic, Unforgettable Smile. So we have Dr. Amir Wahab. He ran a practice in Beverly Hills, and he liked to think of himself as this celebrity dentist. His social media is filled with 
celebrities and stars and musicians, Latoya Jackson and Lisa Vanderpump from the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. But what his patients clearly didn't know is that he had, according to federal prosecutors, entered into an agreement with two big-time stars, including a former National Basketball Association Players Union vice president, to bilk the NBA out of a total of $5 million in bogus insurance invoices. It was a long-running scheme, involved kickbacks, and the Beverly Hills dentist was joined by an L.A. chiropractor, and then there was a sex and wellness doctor in Washington State, all of them giving NBA former and retired players fake invoices for work that never happened. And what kind of work are we talking about here? I mean, how do you end up with a million dollar bill at the dentist? <laughs> I mean, it is kind of extraordinary. And this is obviously how they got caught because you had a bureaucrat back in the insurance office saying, wait a minute, this guy had six root canals on the same tooth on the same day. And hold on, that guy's an NBA player, but it looks like he was in Paris on that day. And this guy plays for a team in China. So he was actually at a basketball game in Taiwan when he was reputedly getting root canals on four teeth. He didn't even bother to travel to Beverly Hills. And I just think it was so easy to make this money grab that they just continued it until it escalated into these ridiculous amounts of money that these players were trying to get reimbursed for. So what finally went wrong? Why did the scheme unravel for them? Well, at some point, the dentist and one of the NBA players, Terrence Williams, he had played for my beloved Boston Celtics for a time. They had agreed to kickbacks, but then some of the players weren't ponying up their end of the bargain. So they had a text exchange that's included in the court record saying, hey, I'm going to stop writing invoices until you guys start paying up. And Williams exploded in his text message saying, you've made thousands of thousands of dollars. All you have to do is print out a piece of paper. And so Terrence Williams decided that he was going to forge paperwork. The doctors and the dentist who didn't want to participate anymore and the problem is Terrence Williams couldn't spell very well. So letterhead had misspellings on it that was going into the insurance company, into the HRA to be reimbursed. And I think it raised some alarm bells that it coupled with the sloppy amounts that the dentist was writing for led to an investigation that in the end took down 18 NBA retired players, one of their spouses, one of their wives, the Beverly Hills dentist, Dr. Wahab, along with this chiropractor, and then, of course, wellness doctor in Washington, D.C. I was going to say, Wahab still hasn't pleaded guilty, correct? I mean, he's still giving this veneers makeovers to Beverly Hills housewives. It is pretty funny. Up until very recently, he was still posting all kinds of perfect white smiles on his Instagram page for unforgettable smiles. And trust me, they were unforgettable. These were perfect white veneers as far as the eye could see. And he's still practicing. But when I started reaching out to some of his patients to ask them if they were aware of the charges that he's about to go on trial for in January, if he doesn't plead guilty before that, his lawyer called me and said, stop reaching out to his clients. This guy needs the money. He's innocent until proven guilty. And Wahab has himself, Dr. Wahab, has ignored all of my requests for comment, both in person and in writing and over the phone. Michelle, are you an L.A. native? 
No, I'm a Boston native who's kind of bounced back and forth between New York City and L.A. But now I live in L.A. So let me just ask you this. Is this a story that could only happen in Beverly Hills? This is such a Beverly Hills story. There are so many medical scams. It's astonishing to me. When I first moved to L.A., I would get press releases almost weekly about some doctor who got locked up for some sort of health insurance fraud. It is so rampant. And I think that's why... Dr. Wahab, this Beverly Hills dentist, and got sloppy. I think he felt a little bit invincible. I think Beverly Hills people feel somewhat insulated from the law just because of their status and their money and their high profiles. So they pushed the envelope a little bit more than the average low-level criminal would. And in this particular case, it led to some devastating charges against Dr. Wahab. If he is convicted, he could face 20 years in prison. And this is a guy who just got married recently to a beautiful young woman. They have two small children, but his life is going to be over. And in the end, when you think about it, how much money did he really make? Enough to blow up your entire career, to lose your dental license? I think it's something that is more tolerated in Beverly Hills until it isn't. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for this great story and for your take on it. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is great. Thanks, guys. (laughs) Michael, this just confirms my worst suspicions about dentists is they're always out to try to stiff you. Okay, not always. Says the woman who's now at war with the National Health Service in the UK. But that's another story. So not at war. Just crossing my fingers that they'll call me back eventually. If there's any Cornell Wild doctors on vacation in London right now, just ping Ashley so she can get a second opinion, which will make her feel a little more at ease. That's all I'm going to say. And make a house call to an expat in London. Oh my gosh, this sounds so ominous. I'm fine, everyone. I just have a bit of a cold. Just have a moderate infection. You're fine, but you can always feel finer. Indeed. Indeed. My adventures with the NHS, like everyone who lives in the UK is probably rolling their eyes right now, but it's the NHS is just one of those things that is like incredibly dysfunctional and also incredibly helpful at the same time. It's a love-hate relationship. Well, speaking of love-hate relationships and on the subject of uh, post-Thanksgiving binging on food, I'm excited to have our next guest on the show. It's Michael Chucky Azzolina, and he has written a fantastic new book. It is called Your Table is Ready, Tales of a New York City Maitre d', and it's on sale now. And we've got a terrific excerpt this week. It's a story of his time working at Brooklyn's River Cafe, and in which he tells us about getting on the wrong side of a mobster from the gaudy crime family and how he lived to tell the tale. We've all seen the Anthony Bourdain about what happens in the kitchen. This is about what happens when you're that guy who's got to greet people and tell them, no, we don't have a reservation for you. No, it's impossible to get a table. Or yes, please come right this way. We'll be expecting you. Right, Ashley? Yes, indeed. I can't wait to get all the dish on the worst behaved restaurant guests in New York. Michael's worked at Mineta Tavern, Raoul's, Le Cuckoo, and the River Cafe as others. And the book is coming out December 6th. So please Welcome, Michael. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Michael, how long did you do this job? My first maitre d' role would have been the River Cafe. So let's say 85. So where are we now? 2022. Let's take off two years of the pandemic. Let's go to 2020. So 15, 35 years. And what did you love about the job that kept you in it for so long? The people. 
It's always the people. It's theater. You know, I had a relatively failed acting career, but I milked it for a number of years. But it's the theater. It's the lights come up, the doors open, people come in, and you're greeting different people every single night. And I've been fortunate enough to work in some great restaurants so where the cast of characters walking through that door is pretty fascinating. From the, the local neighbors who you fall in love with them and their family who are regulars to the superstars and the politicians, etc., etc. So it's a thrilling, exciting business, as crazy as it is, and stressful as it is, it kind of is addicting. In the excerpt that we published in Airmail this week, you talk about a run-in with a member of which crime family? Well, Gotti Castellano family. Okay, so you talk about a memorable encounter with a member of the Gotti crime family when you were working at the River Cafe. Take us back and tell us exactly what happened. It was a Monday night, a very quiet night at the cafe, and things were winding down, and I sat down to have dinner. And as I'm sitting at my table, which faces the dining room and the bar, and the River Cafe is one of the most beautiful restaurants in the world and looking at lower manhattan and at the time the world trade towers and the woolworth building very quiet staring at the bar and i see this gentleman walk up to the bar sit down order a drink about 30 seconds later the valet comes running in and saying michael michael this guy is absolutely drunk he parked his car right in the middle of the circle which means he's blocking anybody coming or going there and refuses to give me his keys so i said okay we've had things like this happened before with drunk patrons. So I gave the signal to our bartender basically not to serve him and cut him off. A minute later, I see him getting poor to do his on the rocks. And I looked at the bartender and I'm like, what, wait, what's going on here? Because when if I cut someone off or he did, we always did that. He gave me sort of a death stare. Don't say anything. So he poured him a drink and then he pulls me over to the side after he gives the guy the drink because you know who that is. I says, no. He said, that's Fat Anthony. Just let me handle this. Okay, I'll let him handle it. So next thing I know, I see the keys being handed to Jimmy, uh, the bartender, sorry, and then he handed to the valet and everything's okay. So I'm thinking he talked him down, we're okay. I go to the bar to pour myself a glass of wine and this guy, Fat Anthony, comes over, backs me up against the window and says, I don't know who you are, I don't know what your name is, but you disrespected me and you're going to have to pay. And then he pulls back, goes to the bar, finishes his drink and walks out the door. And that started this, I guess, a month of finding out who this guy was, how dangerous he was a newly made member of the Gotti crime family. Rumor had it he was involved in the Castellano killing, and basically I disrespected him, and he was going to take care of me, and it put the fear of God into me. I thought they were going to break my legs. Did you ever see him again? I did. A couple of weeks later, he comes in on a very busy Saturday night, walks to the bar with two other guys. One I recognized, who was a numbers runner for some of the other monsters that would hang out in the restaurant, and this big behemoth of a man. And the River Cafe, you had to wear a jacket to get in. If you didn't, we gave you one. Well, we gave him the largest jacket available, apparently. But as I see them walk past into the bar, the whole spat seam had split open because it didn't fit him. The three of them go to the bar, about face, and stare right at me sitting at the table. And I realize this is the guy, Fat Anthony. And I think I could more aptly describe it in the book. I don't know what I can actually say here, but it scared the daylights out of me. And sitting next to me was a legendary New York City detective, Tom Nerdy, who moonlighted on weekend as a security guard. And I turned to him and I said, Tom, this is the guy. Because uh, it, 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 word had gotten around what happened and it went through the restaurant and Tom was aware of it. He goes, oh, I think I know who this guy is. Hang on. Give me a second. I'm going out to the car to get my gun. And I thought, oh, my God, this is insane. As Tom gets up, who walks over to me is Fat Anthony. He leans into the table and he looks at me. He goes, how are you? 
And it was like, for some reason, it was like the day before Mother's Day. And I said, it was the day before Mother's Day. I'm a little bit stressed out. I, I don't care. He says, you disrespected me and you're going to pay for it. And he turned around and walked back to the bar. Well, if you could imagine the fear, which was palpable. And again, I describe it in much more flagrant detail in the book. I assume that these guys were going to break my legs, if not kill me. He goes back to the bar. The cop comes back, sits down next to me, and they eventually leave. And this went on. Oh, God, the whole thing lasted about a month. And word got spread through the restaurant. And one of the other maitre d's knew of one of our customers that was connected to one of the families. And he said, Michael, take a few days off. When this man comes in, we called him Mr. T. When Mr. T comes in, let me talk to him. So he talks to Mr. T. And Mr. T says, you, Michael, got into a big jam here. And we're going to have to work this out some way. He said, when's Michael work next? He said, he'll be here Thursday. So he said, tell him to be here. Give me a table. I'm going to talk to him. So that Thursday night, it's pretty busy. And I'm standing at the maitre d' stands and I feel something in my back. And I thought, oh, my God, now they're here to kill me. And it was I turn around. It's Mr. T. And he's got a gun in my back. He says, do you like the way that feels? I said, no, I don't. He said, OK, good. Bring me a bottle of champagne and take us to our table. We go to the table. I pour him a champagne. I'm shaking less so than the night St. Anthony approached me. And he says, well, you got yourself into trouble here. He disrespected this guy. We think we know who he is. He doesn't go to my church, meaning he's not in my family, but Stem Glass Vinny knows him. Stem Glass Vinny was an undertaker in the neighborhood, was a regular at the bar, and got his name because every time he walked in the door, he ordered his scotch in a stem glass. Even though we all knew the order, he ordered it in a stem glass every single time. And every time he came through the door, he'd come up to me, pinch my cheek, Mikey, good to see you, and then hit me a $20 bill. So he said, stem glass is coming in, we need to talk to him. Tell me exactly what happened. I tell him the story, as I'm telling him the story, Stem Glass Vinny walks in the door, he sees him, gets up, he goes over to him, and they go outside and they talk. He comes back in and he says, all right, I talked to Vinny. He's going to talk to these guys. They're going to have a little sit down, discuss the situation. I'll figure out what's going on and get back to you. The next day, Mr. T shows up. He says, okay, they had a talk. Here's what's going to happen. Anthony's going to come in the restaurant, going to walk up to him and say, Mr. Anthony, I'm very sorry for having disrespected you. Please let me buy you a drink. You got that? Repeat it. I repeated it verbatim. He said, okay. So now I'm waiting for him to return to the restaurant. About two weeks later, on a busy Saturday night, who walks through the door? Todd Anthony and his date, and they go to the bar. And I know this because the two bartenders who are working are now at the complete other end of the bar, trying to get my attention and pointing that way and not wanting to go over there. So I take a deep breath. I go over. I practice my line. And he said, I don't need a drink from you, but I'm expecting a phone call. Let me know when it comes in. Said, okay, sir, I'll, I'll make sure I do that. Now I think this is awful. He's going to start getting phone calls at the restaurant. I'm his B-I-T-C-H. He'll do whatever he wants here. If Buzzy, the owner, hears about this, he doesn't want these guys in there, it's going to be a complete mess. Well, he does get the phone call. they got to call him over. And they basically, he started coming in pretty regularly with the most ill-kempt crowd in the world. And this went on for probably another month. And every time he walked in the door, my heart was in my mouth. So I had no idea what these guys would or could possibly do. One Monday, I walk into the restaurant and Jay, the bartender, is there and he holds up a copy of the New York Post and the headline is Mobster Shot in, I forget the exact headline, but Mobster Shot. He shoves the paper to my face and it was fatting. Apparently he got hit. He was shaking down some club. They didn't like it and they knocked him off. 
I have an important question for you. You talk about Fan Anthony. So let's just get down to brass tacks and practicalities. Does a man at the booth or a woman, there's a certain greasing of the palm that often happens. What is the protocol around that? Is it best to do it on the way in, on the way out? Does it make a difference if there is no table? Just pull the curtain back for us and let us know what is proper etiquette here. Yeah, it's a great question. I'm happy to say I've never sold a table in my life. I've been given gratuities because people needed and wanting something. And if I could do it, I would take it. And if I couldn't do it, I didn't take it. But look, I've worked in some of the best restaurants in the city and the Lake Haku, the world, and people want access there. And it's difficult to get in. It's very hard to get reservations in these very popular restaurants, as we all know. And how do you do it? Well, because the owner gives you a table, because you're a regular because you're a celebrity, you're a politician, etc. But for a guy like me walking into a restaurant, you're not going to get the access. Look, I don't get front row seats at the Giants game. I don't get box seats at Yankee Stadium unless they're gifted to me because I'm just not in that league. Same in a restaurant. You're not going to expect to get the best table in the restaurant every time you walk in there. If it's available and you can do it and you're the first one in there, absolutely. But if not, how do you do it? Honestly, a gratuity always helps. It's because we know you're serious. We know that's something that you really want. And if it can be done, you can do it. But if a customer comes in and it's they're celebrating an anniversary, celebrating a birthday, and I don't have a table because I'm holding some tables and he slips me some money, I'm going to do my best to get him a great table. And if I can't, I will give him the money back. Michael, thank you so much for joining us and also for telling us these great stories. There are more where this came from in his new book, which is is called Your Table is Ready, Tales of a New York City Maitre D. Michael, thank Great. you so much. Thank you so much. It was really a joy talking to you guys. We'll see you at the restaurant, Michael. Okay, I hope so. Thank you. All right, Michael, a lesson for us all, always be nice to the maitre d'. You never know when he's going to write a tell-all. All right, Michael, before we go off into this great holiday weekend, do you have anything at all you could recommend to us? I do. We haven't spoken about the new season of White Lotus, which dropped a couple of weeks ago, but I'm here to say if you haven't gotten around to watching it, now is the time. I won't give any spoilers over here other than to say that it is set in Sicily and that Jennifer Coolidge returns in her role as Tanya, the spaced out heiress. But also joining the cast this season is F. Murray Abraham and Michael Imperioli. And best of all, unlike The Crown, you can watch the show without wondering, did that really happen? It's on HBO and it's available right now. And you, Ashley? I am tempted to recommend my favorite holiday film, The Family Stone. That's right. But instead, I'm going to recommend Rachel Aviv's new book. It's called Strangers to Ourselves, Unsettled Minds and the Stories that Make Us. Uh... This is Aviv's way of looking at mental illness. She's written a lot of amazing stories for The New Yorker where she has been a staff writer since 2013. And this is her book debut. And not only does she talk about her own experience in a hospital when she was just a young girl, but she also does some reporting on five different people from various walks of life who've been diagnosed with mental disorders. And she talks about how those disorders shape them and also how they aren't exactly defined by them and the the complications of those diagnoses. I thought it was just a fascinating look at the psychiatry and psychotherapy in the way of the mind. It's called Strangers to Ourselves, Unsettled Minds and the Stories That Make Us by Rachel Aviv. All right, Michael. Is that my invitation to read us out? We wish you all a lovely holiday weekend. Enjoy the shopping. Enjoy the leftovers. Michael, will you please read us out?
Absolutely. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley, and our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan. Our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, and Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Keep Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thank you again for joining us.